Welcome to Planet Watch on KSCO AM 1080. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman here with Joe Jordan. And today on the program, a conversation with former California Assembly Speaker Pro Tem Fred Keeley. Fred is the author of some of California's most enduring environmental legislation. We'll be talking about the future of environmental protection as well as a groundbreaking effort to refashion the way we get energy to power our lives. Plus science notes and phenomenon. So stay tuned for that and welcome to Planet Watch. Okay, well, we're going to roll into our news roundup, weekly news roundup. This just in, uh, the state of Maryland has a Republican governor, Larry Hogan, who just a couple days ago announced that he'll back a statewide ban on hydraulic fracturing, a.k.a. fracking, for natural gas. This would make Maryland the third state in the U.S. to do this, following the lead of New York and Vermont. Until quite recently, Hogan had expressed support for fracking in Maryland's western counties, where potential reserves of natural gas exist in the Marcellus Shale, a huge geologic formation underlying a region from New York to Tennessee. Hogan said that possible environmental risks of fracking simply outweigh any potential benefits. He urged his colleagues on both sides of the aisle and in both houses of the legislature to put the issue to rest once and for all. Yes, and after that, there'll be no more debate about climate change, I'm sure, in any legislature. <laughs> you know, one thing Sorry to, to be a little snarky there, but I hope he's right. I hope it will be laid to rest by Maryland. One thing to note about fracking, by the way, that you don't hear about that much, is that it releases a lot of what they call fugitive emissions, uh, just um, unplanned for accidental emissions of natural gas and unburned natural gas is way more powerful as a greenhouse gas than the carbon dioxide that you get from burning natural gas. So uh, fracking is associated with a lot of uh, unintentional emissions of unburned CH4 methane, which is natural gas, and that's really bad. So getting rid of fracking, that's yet another reason besides the water poisoning and everything else that is associated with it. Well, and we hope to get an opportunity to ask Fred Keeley about legislation um, mm -hmm. that may be working its way through California that might address fracking as well in our state. Um, another story um, related, but somewhat unrelated, more than half of U.S. medical professionals, some 430,000 practitioners in all, came together recently to warn the public about the health effects of climate change. The Consortium on Climate and Health, a nonprofit coalition of a dozen top medical associations, released a report outlining the dangerous effects of global warming. These include deaths due to increasingly violent weather, asthma and other lung diseases, plus longer wildfire and allergy seasons. Other risks include heat-related illness, infectious disease spread by mosquitoes and ticks, illness from contaminated food and water, and mental health problems due to extreme weather events such as PTSD. So people who have been shocked and scared, I guess that's also considered a, a lingering health effect. And anyone who went through Hurricane Sandy, apparently there are quite a few people still coping with the aftermath of that. Interesting story there. Yeah, I hadn't heard that. You usually think of PTSD as associated with war. But uh, I've heard being in a hurricane is kind of like being in a war zone. Right, right. <laughs> Things flying through the air, making loud noises. Yeah, so I Tommy, I think, is next with another story. Yeah. This is about an indigenous population in the Bolivian Amazon known as the Chimane. Uh, they have the lowest reported level of vascular aging for any population. Um, in a study published in the Lancet, uh, 705 adults aged 40 to 94 received CT scans of their hearts to measure the extent of hardening of the coronary arteries, um, as well as measuring weight, age, heart rate, blood pressure, cholesterol, blood glucose, and inflammation. 85% of the Chimane people had no heart disease risk whatsoever. By comparison, a study of people in the U.S. aged 45 to 84 found only 14% of Americans who show no risk of heart disease. And uh, what's their secret? <laughs> Get up and move. The research suggests, uh, suggests the population's active lifestyle and carbohydrate-based diet, high in fiber and low, and low in fat, had, uh, had a contributing factor to the population's low vascular aging. So the paleo diet? Good idea, but also get out there and, 
and hunt some of those things, right? The mastodons and such. If they have those anymore, I'm not sure they brought them back through DNA uh, cloning. Definitely some exercise there. Yes. And, you know, I have to just do a disclaimer. Sometimes we look at our news stories and go, I'm really sorry to bum you out like this. This is hard stuff. We don't try to cherry pick only the bad news, but there's some pretty intense stuff going on in the northern part of our globe. And one of those intense things, and it's been underway for a while, but it's accelerating, is uh, the melting of permafrost. And a new study uh, talks about that that's accelerating. And now they've, for the first time, been able to map it, exactly where these giant slumps in the earth are happening. And um, happening to be sitting on top of these slumping pieces of land are um, whole ecosystems, cities, roads, pipelines, and traditional indigenous hunting grounds. Um, the author of the study, Kokelj, which I probably am not pronouncing perfectly, says um, that for the first time they've mapped this and it's 1.27 million square kilometers of the region from the Yukon to Nunavut. And the lead author says his team is starting to see changes, he says, that have not been seen for thousands of years. And I'm sure if you're living up there, it's a lot bigger deal than it seems like for us down here because the land is literally melting out from under villages and such. So it's a big deal. Stay on solid ground here in California. Maybe things will get better. So um, we're really very excited to have a guest in the studio today. We've been doing a lot of guests that were coming, beaming in through interview and other forms of technology. But this one's a live one on the line. We've <laughs> <laughs> got a live one on the line here. Uh, Mr. Fred Keeley, he, he was speaker pro tem for the legislature in California on the assembly side. He's the author of some pretty groundbreaking pieces of environmental legislation. And, you know, we talk about all these big changes in the environment and science and the way people deal with trying to mitigate some of those damaging things is through legislation, through acting collectively. Fred is currently teaching a class at San Jose State University in environmental policy in the master's degree program there. And uh, we're very happy to have you on board here. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Rachel. It's always a pleasure to see you and Joe. Thank you very much. Great to have you. So, Back going in the Wayback Machine, <laughs> I'll take you back in time. When you were in the legislature in the 90s, uh -huh. what was the biggest uh, struggle and battle you were facing there um, trying to change environmental legislation? What do you think was the biggest um, gain that you guys made during that time? Well, I think the biggest gain at that point, and keep in mind, this was before AB 32, which uh, then Assemblymember Fran Pavley authored uh, after I left the legislature and her work on AB 32 and then when she got to the Senate SB 32 on global climate change and putting California in the fore forefront of uh, doing very, very good and comprehensive work. I, I always want to make sure that I talk about her work uh, because it was so important to our state. But when I was there from 1996 through the early 2000s, uh, there were a couple of issues that were uh, dominant. One uh, was what we do about the three miles out into the ocean, 1,100 miles long along our coastline that are state of California waters. And there's a high concentration. As you get closer and closer to the coast in the ocean, any ocean, you find that there's a greater and greater density and an abundance of, of ocean life. What we also know is that one of every two breaths that you take comes from the ocean. If, uh, if the ocean isn't uh, operating as a system, uh, then half of all the oxygen in the world goes away. So our coast and ocean are critically important in terms of their health and vitality directly relates to the rest of life on our planet. And so ocean policy was an important issue when I was in the legislature and uh, both the governor and the members of the Senate were interested in that uh, when I was in the assembly. So I authored a couple of bills, one, the Marine Life Management Act, Marine Life Protection Act, California Ocean Science Trust Act, and those were a trio of bills for, uh, in essence, integrated management of our ocean resources in such a way that they can uh, be healthy into the future and we can reduce the uh, 
acidification of the ocean, which is not only bleaching out and killing coral reefs around the world as just an indicator of, of the kinds of problems uh, that go on the ocean. Uh, but th- that is the basic concept, is for, for us to be responsible along the coast of California. The good news is, is that after that legislation was passed, both the states of Oregon and Washington... Uh, in effect, mimic that legislation. And so now we have from the United States-Canadian border to the United States-Mexican border, we have three states that are working in in harmony on ocean management and conservation. It's great to hear. Um, So it's interesting that California is one of the richest states, one of the biggest states. We have the largest coastline. And we also probably put out a lot of greenhouse gases Mm because we have more interstate. And when you look in L.A., it looks like we have the most cars. Mm -hmm. We have one of those superlative states. So it makes sense we'd have this pretty aggressive climate change bill. How how did we pass that? You know, was it a different time? Would it have passed today the SB and AB 32? And can you talk about um, the state's response to climate change? You talked about how we deal with the ocean Mm -hmm. acidification piece. But how about the emissions piece? I think this is one of those, uh, you were talking earlier as you were each taking turns reading <laughs> the saddest story of the week relative to the environment. And, Sorry. Uh, no, no, it's, it's absolutely important to do. As we move along, not at all to be complacent about that, but to also uh, get a sense that working in this field can be very beneficial. We look and say, well, the air today is actually cleaner than it was 10 years ago. And 10 years ago, it was cleaner than it was 10 years before that. Most water quality in the United States is cleaner today than it was 10 years ago. 10 years ago, it was cleaner than it was 10 years before that. And that's because we have Clean Air Acts and Clean Water Acts. Now, at the federal level, they're under assault. Almost every environmental policy is under assault now with the new administration. But California made a decision back when Gray Davis was governor and then Arnold Schwarzenegger and now Jerry Brown that it is, in effect, political malpractice to wait around for the federal government to come to terms with uh, any of the issues around global climate change. And so California getting in the game, if you will, uh, with AB 32 was a bipartisan effort. Governor Schwarzenegger, a Republican, signed that into law. A Democratic legislature put it on his desk. Uh, And what it said in essence is that with regard to air quality in California, we are going to reduce emissions uh, by the year 2020 to 1990 levels of emissions. Not adjusted for population, not adjusted for anything, just raw numbers, no matter how much we're growing, and we're growing at about 400,000 people a year, births over deaths, immigration over emigration, about 400,000 people, sometimes 500,000 a year. So to have a target, and uh, we are now meeting that target, uh, one of the people who gets a lot of credit for that is our own John Laird, who is uh, Governor Brown's Secretary of the Natural Resources Agency. Uh, A lot of his work in the Resources Agency, as well as over at the California Environmental Protection Agency, are the keys every day to making that happen. Uh, But the law is on the books, the regulatory architecture is there, the political will is there, and the, uh, the metrics are that we are making substantial improvement in California. And you mentioned that that we're a big state. We are a big state. But one of the things California is doing is working with a handful of other states and a handful of provinces in Canada on energy issues, uh, renewable energy, something Joe knows an awful lot about, uh, the energy world. Uh, But we're really doing some, some landmark good work, I think, in California. Joe's going to ask you a question, I'm sure, in just a minute. But I did want to mention and thank um, Michael McKay, who sent us an article um, that says that energy carbon emissions are flat for a third year in a row. They were flat for the whole country um, from 2014 till now, which is pretty amazing considering that the growth 
of the economy was 3.1%. So when you talked about the difference of growth and, in fact, our state's growing, but we're going down, that's significant. It means we're making big strides. Hopefully other people listening, and there are a few listeners in other states that are picking up this show, um, <laughs> can get inspired and find out what we did right and, and to duplicate and maybe we'll copy Maryland when it comes yeah. to fracking. Yeah, we did have one good news story <laughs> that Maryland's going to ban, looks like they're going to ban frac fracking as led by their Republican governor. Uh, I wanted to ask Fred about um, and, and all of us actually uh, there was a historical note here which fortunately came and went but there was an effort by the oil companies, big powerful oil companies to dupe Californians into overturning AB 32 you remember? You may remember Prop 23, and I always joked about how 23—that's 32 backwards. They were trying to roll back, you know, the groundbreaking uh, legislation that we had in place to limit carbon emissions. But the California voters saw through it, and you know, I wasn't sure how we we're going to go because you see lots of evidence lately of voters being just completely had, you know, taken, duped by the media, the politicians, but. Californians were hip at least 10 years ago when this thing tried to happen, and, and we, we beat it back. So what, what's your thinking on how that came down and, and worked out well? <laughs> well, I think there's a couple of things here, Joe. One of them is that uh, Californians, especially along the coast, uh, and 70% of the population of our state lives within about a one to one and a half hour drive of the coast. So whether it's permanent residents on the coast or folks who love the coast and ocean, uh, we have a shared value in California. It's not a Republican issue or a Democratic issue. It's not libertarian or vegetarian. It's a shared value across the board. Now, it may be deeper in some areas than it is in others, but you got to go really searching out in California to find areas that in one way or another are not deeply committed to the environment. You go into some of the districts that uh, my Republican colleagues on the other side of the aisle represented up in the eastern part of the state, and those folks are very concerned about water quality, about the snowpack, about the health of the forests, and so on. You get out on the coast, people get a lot more concerned about the coast and ocean protection issues. You get in the middle of the state, and you know that subsidence due to the drought, uh, over-pumping of the groundwater aquifers, that's a big issue for people. So one of the benefits for those of us like you and Rachel and your colleague here who, who work in environmental policy and are advocates uh, for a good, clean environment, you have in this state roughly 40 million people, most of whom are going to agree with most of where that's going to go. Now, I don't want to over paint this picture too positively. Certainly there are large interests that think it's either moving too fast, it's not moving in their direction, uh, they want to slow it down, want to repeal it, whatever it might be. But the body politic in California is getting not only younger and browner, it's getting greener. And I think that's a, that's a very good, uh, good thing for us. And I heard some polling around that effort to overturn um, mm -hmm. AB 32, and it said that most people really, really do not out, like outside money. And most of that money came mm -hmm. out from outside of the state. So when it, once that was revealed, the polling went down. Mm -hmm. um, it mm -hmm. doesn't give me huge confidence because people were kind of in the middle about it until that came out, that it was being influenced from outside companies, from Exxon and all these companies from outside the state, and that got into the advertising. But it, but maybe it's not so incongruent. They did not want other people dictating the future of their state it is really what it's about, as much as it is about driving our own environmental destiny. Actually, something of national interest that's related to that, and I should know this and can't say I do, but maybe you folks do. Are we in a new era, though, now where it's not as easy to reveal or to find out and reveal the sources of, you know, uh, political campaigns funding? I'm sort of under the impression that there's lots of dark money now that doesn't have to be, you know, outed. And uh, it's harder than ever to tell whether outside money is contaminating Elections. Uh, well, maybe Fred knows about the the rules concerning um, referenda and things like that, and measures in California's ballot. Are, are the same rules apply to individuals that apply to referenda and um, initiatives? 
They do. In California, the election law applies to, in essence, everything on the ballot, whether it's a candidate or a proposition, whether that's local uh, or a state. Uh, the locals can have different, uh, more strict rules if they choose to. Santa Cruz County has a couple. Uh, most communities do have something that's a little more strict than the state or somewhat different than the state. But Joe has identified the glaring problem inside the current campaign finance and disclosure law and it is the dark money and there is a direct link between that and Citizens United uh, about why that money is uh, not required to be disclosed. Uh, it is wrapped up in an interpretation of the First Amendment, uh, free speech issues. Uh, the court ruled on that some time ago and it's uh, been a decision that I think has had profound and untoward effects on the body politic, not just in California, but throughout the country. It has really, uh, free speech is, is, is it is interesting to tie political speech and free speech and paid speech and so on together. Uh, but the with, uh, I'm not a lawyer, so I won't get into what the fine points of the law are because I would be, you know, giving an opinion, which, uh, you know, is probably not studiously correct. But I do think, as an individual member of the body politic, that uh, if you don't know where the money's coming from, you don't really know where the money is coming from. <laughs> then uh, it makes the messaging. Uh, shall we say, at least you ought to be skeptical of the messaging. I will say this, though, that in California, I think we're pretty sophisticated. We, we have a half a dozen to a dozen ballot measures on every time there's an election. And I think the electorate has become relatively sophisticated um, in moving its way through most of these ballot measures. Mm -hmm. I got a line that might as well record for posterity right now about this free speech baloney. <laughs> what I say is, it's not speech and it's not free. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you got to pay <laughs> to get those messages out there to diddle around with people's minds and right. hearts. Corporations aren't really people, so they aren't should not be protected in the same way we are, which would be yeah. rather frightening if, if they got all of our rights. Mm -hmm. Tommy, did you have a question? Yes. Yeah, Fred, um, you were talking about... Um, changes regionally, but I was also wondering, uh, as a teacher, if you see a, a generational gap in, or at least a generational uh, change toward more proactive climate change uh, movements. Yeah, I, as Rachel mentioned, I teach in the graduate program of public administration at San Jose State, and then I also teach at CSU Monterey Bay and I'm on the faculty at the Panetta Institute and in all three cases I work in uh, essentially in the environmental space uh, working on a, a variety of issues so what that does in response to your question is you know rather than me only hanging out with uh, you know exceptionally old people like myself it gives me a chance uh, three times every week to be engaged with of folks much closer, much closer to your generation, and including your generation. And I've noticed, I notice a couple of things. One is uh, the joining question, uh, the way folks like Joe and Rachel and I used to measure joining things is not how your generation measures joining things or being engaged in an activity. Uh, uh, it, it's clear to me from working with the students with whom I work that uh, they uh, pick and choose and make a decision and engage in an action, then withdraw from that, look at something else, are motivated by something else, drop in, take an action, take two or three more actions in that, back out, look at something else, etc. There is much less sort of joining on a permanent basis. That makes the political organizing challenging, but only if you look at it old school. If you look at it new school, it's way better. Look at, for example, what's uh, going on throughout the country uh, in the wake of the 2016 general election and the work that some staff folks on the Hill put together uh, by way of modern tools of organizing and 
in effect, I think the popular word these days is resisting the uh, Trump administration efforts. Uh, I think it's a massive change, massive change in how organizing works. Uh, and I think the one of the exciting things, whether it's the Women's March the day after the president's inauguration or it is uh, these uh, reactions uh, to members of Congress being on their spring break, spring break and they are going back to their districts and uh, finding an awful lot of folks who want to talk about the Affordable Care Act or other issues. There is a level of organizing that is rapid and direct and I think it fits the way a lot of people live their lives these days. Yeah, and, and I wanted to add to that. And if you just tuned in, um, we're we are Planet Watch. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman with Joe Jordan and Tommy Martin. Fred Keeley is our guest. Fred is a longtime legislator in California. He was the Speaker Pro Tem of the Assembly for many years, and he's here talking environmental policy with us. I. And what about the email address? And the we? email. Thank you. Yeah. Radioplanetwatch at gmail.com is how you reach us. If you have a question for Fred, we have about 15 more minutes with him, so if you'd like to beam in via email we would love to take your questions or and of comments. course you can send email anytime even between shows and you know we'll have it queued up for the next show but and radio we, planet watch at gmail.com and we are streaming live on facebook right now so you can see us um and you can even write to us a comment on facebook we'll probably get it as well so go to planet watch the page on facebook and you can type in your questions that way fred's kind of way over there behind the microphone i wonder if we can, can there there he's <laughs> Maybe we can move Mom, that thing I'm a on bit. TV. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, you you mentioned something that that sparked something uh, in my mind, and that was when Scott Pruitt uh, famously said that climate change was not human caused, or CO two did not cause climate change, and um, you know his office got flooded with phone calls. They got hammered. And I don't think that's very common. It's common for Congress people to get some calls on certain issues, but mm -hmm. from what I'm hearing. There's a nonstop flood of people inputting. That's encouraging to me. And it's got to be, you know, back when you were in office, I, I'm sure you got a lot of calls, but only on particular issues and only sometimes. From what I hear, and I hope it's true, there's pretty much a constant phone call parade. Both sides of the aisle mm -hmm. are getting it. It's mm -hmm. not just the people perpetrating the assault on the Environmental Protection Agency. Mm -hmm. It's uh, both sides, and the and Democrats are hearing from their constituents saying, stand firm and stand tall. <laughs> so what was it like then, and what are you seeing? I mean, are you, are you hearing that from co colleagues who are still in office? Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, the communication tools are more more available, easier to use. Uh, communication with elected officials is... Uh, uh, it, it has increased substantially. Uh, the old school way used to be that you had some rule of thumb about if you get a, a, a letter written versus a phone call, that one letter's worth 10 phone calls and a fax is worth this or that or whatever. All that's out the window, gone. Uh, it is so easy to communicate with elected officials and, and they get an it, enormous amount. Does it work? Amount. Does it work? That's the main it, thing we want to know. Because you know, it does. It's a, now, let me just say, it's a, does it work? What does that mean? Does it mean that if you call up your legislator and you have a different belief than their core values, let's say on a woman's right to choose or whatever it might be, core values aren't going to change. Elected officials, Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Vegetarian, as I've said before, are not going to change their core values, nor should they uh, change their core values. But can we, on issues around the environment, uh, make intelligent, informed decisions? I think there's a lot of room around that. So, for example, if I could just riff for a second here. When, when I authored the Marine Life Management Act, the Marine Life Protection Act, the idea was to uh, protect the coast by establishing a series of marine protected areas that would deal with a specific species of fish here or a fishery there or uh, whatever it might be up and down the coast of California. One of the things we did was I also wrote the California Ocean Science Trust Act so that we could have a safe intersection between policy and science where 
it was not one of these uh, 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 loud shouting debates about, gee, you're using junk science. No, I'm not using junk science. Yes, you are. No, you aren't. Gee, a hundred people think this and one thinks that, so that's moral equivalency. Of what... No, it isn't. So the, it, having a, a good, open transparent way to deal with science and policy, I think, at the federal level, we have a good model here in California uh, to use to bring an end to this kind of silliness where a uh, the administrator of the United States Environmental Protection Agency is at odds with more than 99% of the scientific community worldwide with regard to the causes of global climate change and what the solutions are that need to be implemented within 10 years to prevent the endless feedback loop that's going to cause us enormous problems. I'm glad you riffed on that because it did seem rather strange because it was so out of sync with um, what scientists say. And it seems to be... um, the MO of this administration, if they don't like the messenger, they discredit the messenger instead of the message, or both. So scientists have been getting attacked for quite some time, not just now after the Trump administration has taken hold, but from the fossil fuel industry, from paid PR hacks that come in and go on television and pretend to be quasi-experts and say there's really no consensus when there's a massive consensus. So we have kind of a well, concentrated a, effort of misinformation. And let's take a look, for example, we, just uh, to, to compare and contrast a little bit. You have, you have uh, the new administration in Washington, D.C. They want to select an administrator of the United States Environmental Protection Agency. The selection they make is an attorney general from basically an oil economy state who has a long record of engaging in litigation against the the United States Environmental Protection Agency. That's not a mystery then. That There should be no mystery. This wishful thinking business about, gee, maybe once he gets over there and really wrestles with the issues and, you know, this will sort of steer down the middle, one paddle to the right, one to the left. No, there's nothing of the sort is going to happen. Any more than when Governor Brown appointed John Laird, Secretary of the Natural Resources Agency, did anybody really think John Laird was going to say, well, you know, this offshore oil Maybe I should look at it. You know, there's something to be said over here and something to be said. Hell no. Hell no. If John Laird would even hinted that he was, <laughs> that he would be gone. So, you know, as Maya Angelou says, when someone reveals to you who they are, believe them the first time. And uh, there is no mistake about who Scott Pruitt is or what they intend to do or what this administration intends to do. It is going to dismantle the Environmental Protection Agency. So where does that leave our country. That leaves every state is going to have to do what they choose to do. The good news for us is that not only do we have a very progressive and active legislature and governor and administration on this topic, uh, but there is a, a level of bipartisanship on many of these environmental issues which uh, are going to allow California to comp- continue to be a leader. Now, it's going to be more expensive for our state as EPA backs away uh, because we will need, if we want to have the same level of protection, we will need to then enact state law and, and work to just to hold the ground that we're on right now. You know, uh, all this stuff, there's one big topic I still want to talk to you about in the six minutes we have left uh, that is a favorite of both yours and mine, namely <laughs> solar net metering. But... Um, this discussion we've just been having, uh, the whole thing of education as the savior or the, the key to saving us from people throwing up their hands saying, I don't know who to believe. You hear this from these people, you hear that from those people. Well, look, if you have a basic solid grounding in science and you know the way reality works, that can help a lot. And we just need to do everything we can to tremendously support and, and uh, enhance education of the people of this state and country so there's a pitch for that (laughs) and that's part of why that's the main reason why rachel and i decided to do this show i mean we've been wanting to do this for a long time anyway but it just sort of came to a head last november okay it's time but um back to uh solar the uh the old speaking of saviors if (laughs) if there is a savior for the human race it's going to be our hero mr sun (laughs) and one of the main things that i know about fred is that he was uh very much involved with maybe the 
primary author of California's uh, net metering legislation. Now, that sounds wonky, and, and it is. But basically, if you have solar on your house, you can run your meter backwards. You get credited at the full retail rate. I mean, there are all kinds of little you know, caveats and exceptions here and there, but that's the basic idea. I do that on my house. Rachel does that on her house. And um, Fred was, I mean, it was going on elsewhere in the country, and there was a big legal fight in California. I remember for years, the, the PG&E, you know, the utility lawyers were battling against it. They didn't want this to happen. And somehow you and others finessed that so that it's available to us. And uh, it's thank huge. You. And, thank you. Thank yeah, you. Thanks. And I'm kind of wondering what the stories were behind that. How did that come to pass? And whatever you can say about it. Because uh, the short version of the story is that it occurred, the opportunity occurred uh, during the energy crisis of 1999, 2000, 2001. Uh, and uh, the state had, the year before I got to the legislature, had deregulated uh, the electricity sector of the energy market. And uh, because of an, shall we say, an imperfectly drafted bill, uh, all hell broke loose. And we had rolling brownouts and blackouts in California and needed to try all kinds of things to get that uh, back in place uh, so that we would have a, a supply of, of electricity uninterrupted. That because that uh, that went on for about a year, and uh, uh, as large legislation, uh, we were moving that through to solve the actual problem. We could entrain behind that uh, bills that were premised on the argument that uh, we really don't want to continue to be beholden to especially sources outside of California or uh, any sources that are not renewable. And so based on the work that had been done in the Carter administration way back in the day in the 1970s, uh, California used some models to develop uh, uh, economic incentives for renewable energy. The big fight around putting solar on your house and then your meter would run backwards and if you had more electricity that you were generating than using, PG&E was required to buy that electricity back, just like you're a generator of electricity, because you are. The fight around that uh, was not about is renewable energy good, bad, or indifferent. Everybody's willing to stipulate that it was good. It got tied up in a range of issues around how the Public Utilities Commission figures out general rate cases and the opportunity for a return on investment by the the uh, uh, the investor-owned utilities and so on. But the short version of how we got to goal was that we agreed on a cap on how much solar energy could be sold back into the system. Then and only then were the utilities willing to lift their opposition to it. Interestingly enough, a few years after the law was enacted and more and more people were doing what you and Rachel did and put the solar on your home and your business and your farm, uh, what happened was PG&E went to the Public Utilities Commission and said, you know that 5% cap? We believe they've hit the 5% cap. We believe that, all, and so no more solar energy net metering, no more. And uh, that what ensued was a really good rip-roaring battle before the PUC, in which uh, I had a good time in the way that people have an unusual good time, which was <laughs> to actually testify in front of the PUC about what my legislative intent was, to interpret that uh, what did that five-year period mean? And what did, I'm sorry, what did that 5% mean? Uh, and uh, had we hit it or not? Uh, turns out that the PUC sided with, with myself and the other applicants who said uh, that we were nowhere near the 5% and hmm. needed to continue. They needed to continue to buy and credit. So it's worked out uh, well. It will have to be addressed at some future date when they do hit the 5% level. And uh, So we're still not there. Uh, no, because, uh, shall we say, I have, uh, you'll be shocked to hear this, a liberal interpretation of uh, that 5%. <laughs> 
<laughs> so the way you, you count things up is, yeah, is right. what it comes down right. to. If you just joined us, we are Planet Watch. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman, along with Joe Jordan and our guest, Fred Keeley. Um, in our final five minutes, I wonder if you can talk about um, this idea that may spread around the country of community aggregated energy. I, I might be naming it wrong, but I think you know what I'm talking about. Community choice aggregation. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> CCA. Yeah, I... I think uh, this community choice aggregation business is wonderful. It is a way that communities can decide the kind of uh, uh, what will they use, what will they be buying uh, by way of how electricity is generated. Will they be buying this from a, a source that uses coal or a source that uses nuclear, a source that you, what is it that they use? And this community choice aggregation allows communities to say, well, gee, we would like to, in essence, purchase virtually all of our electricity from renewable sources. Uh, it allows uh, local governments to get together and to have purchasing power, have market power, uh, to be able to purchase at a low price and to be able to save uh, customers on, on the price of their electricity. But I think more importantly, even if the price is the same, that uh, you're getting clean energy when you make this purchase. And by creating these community choice aggregations throughout the state, you end up building bigger and bigger and bigger demands into the market. Uh, I, I always get a kick out of when people say, well, you know, solar energy is a great idea or wind or whatever it is, but, you know, the government still has to subsidize it, it seems, and so on. Um, I always like to talk about what it costs to have the seventh fleet in the uh, Gulf of Oman uh, to protect energy sources. And if you want to put that into the gallon of gas, I'd be glad to then compare government subsidies. But Wait, uh, we start enough of my pissy the, little comments. Well, uh, when we start factoring the cost of, you know, Hurricane Katrina and Sandy, then we really have go. a jump in energy Well, price. another example is computers. I mean, geez, the original computers, <laughs> something that, you know, is in your cell now used to fill up a whole room and cost millions of dollars, but yeah. you get economies of scale as you go down the learning mm -hmm. curve. And the same thing with solar, and and this business about that wonky term aggregation, community choice aggregation. That's what Fred was just saying. You pool your buying power mm -hmm. as multiple people in multiple communities, and you can get a better deal on the right stuff, renewable energy. And by the way, the tri-county region we're in, Monterey, Santa Cruz, and San Benito counties, is now on track, solidly, to become, so far, the nation's largest CCA, Community but, Choice And, and in the uh, credit where credit is due, uh, Jenny Johnson, who used to be the executive director of Ecology Action and for many years now has worked for Supervisor Bruce McPherson, uh, she's been working on this for a long time, and... Uh, uh, Supervisor McPherson really has taken a, a major policy lead and dedicated essentially a full staff person to this for many years. And uh, so thanks to both of them for their good work on that. Yeah, and we'll be getting into this uh, more on some future programs. Yes, absolutely. Uh, um, and just one final question, because I like to ask my guests this. How are you feeling these days about, you know, the future and the environment? How, do you change on a daily basis like some of us? Or how are you emotionally, like, just getting up and... Going about your day. Mm -hmm. So, uh, again, the short answer is this. Um, I believe that uh, I can look at the three of you and know that you have more than, shall we say, a passing commitment to the environment. And I think that we are blessed to live in a community and a state where many people share that value. I believe in this. I believe uh, I'm, a, I'm a sort of calm, mild-mannered kind of guy, uh, but I've worked at this subject matter for 40 years, and I think if you work at something for 40 years and you work at it hard like you folks have, like I have, we're warriors. Uh, you know, we're, we're, and I don't mean the Santa Cruz warrior type, although I adore and love the Santa Cruz warriors. Um, but Basketball team. We are, we are warriors, 
And uh, when you are a warrior, it means that you are going to face any opposition. You are going to face any resistance. You are going to face any challenge that comes up because we are warriors. What, are, what, is, what is this warrior business about for us? It's about fighting literally for the health of the planet. So that's issue number one. Issue number two is that as both I don't think Tommy knows this. We don't know each other real well, but Joe and Rachel know that I'm irrationally optimistic. I believe that if there's a drop of water in the glass, that at any moment the glass must be in danger of overflowing. <laughs> so I admit that I'm irrationally optimistic. But I think it's a great way to get up every day and be a warrior, is that you believe that lots of other people believe the same thing, and they're good-willed, and the stakes are really high, and we're going to get it done. Wise words from Fred Keeley. Thank you for being our guest today. It is today. my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, great having you here again. Yeah, Thank you, you Joe. You make me optimistic. Thank you, Tommy. Yeah, <gasps> me too. So we have just about a 10 minutes left of the show, and Joe, as usual, is going to take us through some planetary explorations and other um, interesting facts that you might not know, just so that when you get up in the morning and you are looking for something to keep you optimistic, you'll get the long view, like the cosmos view, which, you know... Things have been around a long time before us, and we'll be here a lot longer than we are here. So there's something comforting in that, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, let's see. There we go. Um, there's something that's going to happen uh, in the next few hours, actually, for all of us on the planet. Um, and, well, what's today's date? March 19th. Now, most people probably think that the equinox happens on the 21st, but it never happens on the 21st. The solstices do. But the spring equinox is always on the 20th or even the 19th. And in fact, there's one or two time zones east of the international date line where the spring equinox is going to happen on today's date, the 19th. But for most, all the rest of the world, including our time zones in the United States, it's going to be um, in the wee hours tomorrow morning, the 20th. It's going to happen California time at 3.29 a.m. And at that moment, the sun, the center of the sun will be straight overhead at some point along the equator, I usually say for some lucky fish on the equator because <laughs> most of the time it's overhead somewhere in the oceans. But I looked at a map and I realized at 3.29 our time, which is 6.29 a.m. East Coast time, the sun will probably be overhead in Africa somewhere on the land. <laughs> but anyway, just a little quiz for you there. But so uh, note that um, our spring's equinox comes earlier than the 21st and the fall equinoxes always come on the 22nd or 23rd of September. Now I mentioned this last week I think. Hence the cooler half of the year in the northern hemisphere from equinox to equinox is a couple few days shorter and on top of that we get the short month February and again that's because our orbit around the sun is an ellipse and we're closest to the sun believe it or not during this cooler part of the year we're closest of all on January 3rd so we're traveling faster so so there's more days uh, in the uh, because we're going slower around the sun in our summer half half so to speak uh, of the year now the equinox uh, is laden with all sorts of uh, interesting, crazy, uh, hilarious things. Uh, they say that you can balance, I call it the eggwinox, because <laughs> they say you can balance a raw egg on its small end on the equinox. Joe, you should have brought one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I could have been working egg? on it this whole time while Fred was <laughs> talking. <laughs> Might have upstaged a bit. I, I've done this a couple of times. One time my family did it when I was living back east. We found a really smooth kitchen countertop and we balanced a raw egg on its end on the equinox. I forget which equinox it was. Now, if I'm going to say you can balance a raw egg on its small end on the equinox, that is a true statement. But there's one word I can add that will make it a false statement. Namely, only on the equinoxes <laughs> can you balance a raw egg on its small end. In other words, you can do it any day. It's just that nobody ever bothers to do it because there's this thing you get in the newspapers about how, well, what does equinox mean? It means equal night. You know, day and night are equal all over the world. Did you just true. pull our leg? <laughs> But because oh, day and night are equal, then everything is set up just right so you can balance an egg. <laughs> so anyway, but, so that's your homework, your science experiment for next week. Go off and waste a whole bunch of time <laughs> balancing. And eggs. Probably <laughs> no, I, a dozen eggs in the process. I did this when I was in college. Uh, it was a big hit. We had this uh, all-male, all-freshman animal house dorm that, that I was in. And, and I, this guy in our hall had a couple of little baby chicks that he was raising in his room. And I balanced a raw egg 
on the floor in the hallway and I took a picture as these chicks came up. They were about the same size as the egg <laughs> and one of those chicks was staring and, and I took a picture. I should have put it like on the cover of Life magazine. The chicken or the egg. There was this <laughs> chicken and the egg right next to it and then suddenly the chicken rushed to the egg, just charged the egg and so then I got a picture of it sitting on top of an egg that was as big as itself. That, that would have been <laughs> I, I don't know if I can still find these old hard copy prints but uh, uh, another thing that's interesting that happens if you happen to be at one of the poles on the earth on the equinox uh, this is the day when the sun see on the poles the sun doesn't go up and go down except extremely slowly it goes around the sky every day and on the equinoxes on the north pole the sun is slowly crawling around the horizon all day long in a clock clockwise direction as it slowly rises <laughs> meanwhile on the antarctic the sun is slowly crawling around the horizon in the counterclockwise direction as it slowly sets <laughs> for uh, the oncoming six months of twilight into darkness, into deeper darkness, and then back to darkness, and then back to twilight, and then finally six months from now, the sun will be rising as it goes around the horizon in the Antarctic while it is setting as it goes around the horizon in the Arctic, back on the autumnal, uh, the September equinox. <laughs> There is nothing more confusing than going to the other side of the world from here and noticing that the seasons are backwards. And I guess if you go all the way to the other end of the earth, it's going to be really dark right now. Is that what you <laughs> yeah. just said? It's perpetual and actually, night. A, a fun little thing, to another little quiz for you. I didn't even realize this. A, a lot of people don't realize this, but uh, clockwise, if you look at something going clockwise, take a look from the other side. Like, like a clock, go around to the back side of your clock, and if you can figure out which way the hands are going, it's anti-clockwise, counterclockwise. Counterclockwise is clockwise upside down. <laughs> so just look from the other side. So that's what it leads to what I just said about the sun. Now, we got to answer the riddle from last week. It was Rachel's birthday um, last, uh, well, two Saturdays ago, March 11th, and any day on the year, you know, Christmas or your birthday or you know, June 23rd, whatever. Just pick a day. The question was, how long does that date actually last on the Earth when you consider all the time zones? You know how, like, today, when it ends here at midnight, it'll still be going on. It'll still be, what is it today, March 19th. It'll still be March 19th in Hawaii. <laughs> and it was March 19th in the UK and in, you know, Europe before it got to our shores. So, how long is it that there's some trace of any given date on the Earth? There's a certain continuous time period. I'm gonna, I raised that last week. Maybe some of you thought about it. I'm going to tell you the answer now. Wait, I like the other example you gave where they started partying for my birthday like hours in advance. <laughs> right, right. And they kept on partying for hours after it happened. They did. Yeah, they're still celebrating the Rachel entire... Goodman Day in Hawaii, you know, long after. Yeah, <laughs> and, and by that theory, Rachel Goodman's like 19. Yeah. <laughs> younger, too. It's amazing. But, but uh, you ready f for the answer here? Um, yeah, you might. Some people say 48 hours. That's close, but it's actually 47 hours. Yeah. And if you have a picture, uh, kind of like one of those chocolate oranges or, or a tangerine, you know, where you have these multiple sections. Imagine a pie with 24 slices. Um, <laughs> you touch all 24 of those, lighting them up with this date you know, in that time zone. So you get the whole world filled for an hour with your birthday. And then you start touching the time zones again to light <laughs> them up with the next date. And if you think about that, you will, <laughs> there will be 23 full hours extra on top of the original 24 where you're, where there's any trace of your birthday <laughs> on the world. So 47. Anyway, I'll do a better job of that next time. But, I liked uh, it. I liked it. That was <laughs> okay. great. Thank you, Joe. I love the examples as well. We'll be back again next week with another fascinating interview with one of the heavy hitters in the climate movement to tell you more about what's going on in this state and beyond. This has been Planet Watch. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. And Joe Jordan. Keep an eye on the sky. And Tommy Martin. Thanks and for thanks. listening. <laughs> and thanks, thanks to Fred Keeley for being our guest. Yeah.